Singapore is a global financial hub. Many were transplanted here to work for the financial services sector. But have you wondered if you could set up your own venture capital fund here? There's an understanding in the region whether you are interested to invest in a VC fund or set up your own venture fund, Singapore is a must. In other words, investors are only interested in investing in your fund if you set up shop here. But what are the challenges of wooing investors and creating a stable deal flow if you are a micro-venture fund? For that and more, welcome to the very first episode of Transplanted Here. Transplanted Here is a podcast produced by Draper Startup House. We are a global entrepreneurship ecosystem with physical spaces all around the world. We want to empower 1 million entrepreneurs. And in this series, we will be spending time with amazing innovators making their mark on a foreign land. They left their homes for a multitude of reasons and have created thriving businesses all over the world. My name is Vikram Bharati, founder of Draper Startup House International. In season one, we will be focusing on Singapore, a thriving business hub in the heart of Asia. Our guest today was born in Zimbabwe, but she grew up in Australia given the turmoil in her hometown. She later got transplanted here to Singapore on an unpaid internship program with the UN Women. She is currently the founder of an award-winning flagship accelerator designed for pre-Series A startups to fast-track growth and drive success. They have also set up a $5 million micro-venture fund to support startups in their ecosystem. So I'm excited to introduce a friend of mine, Amra Naidu from Accelerating Asia. All right. Well, we should always start with the... Hi, Amra. Thank you for coming to the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) So maybe we can start with... A little background about yourself, mm-hmm. uh, where you're from, where did you go to school, and how did you end up being in Singapore doing what you're doing? Yeah, so I was born in Zimbabwe, which is quite far away from here, <laughs> where we are currently right now in Singapore. Um, I lived there until I was about 13, and because of the political situation and everything that was going on there at the time, my parents decided to move us to Australia. So that's where I get my subtle Australian twang from. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so lived there for a while, did finished high school, did university and and started work in Australia um, before coming over to Singapore about eight years ago now. Yeah, almost exactly eight years. So what was the transition to Australia like? Because you were eight, so you have memories. Uh, Do you remember any sort of... uh, problems or was it all smooth sailing? Mm. So actually I was a bit old. I was, um, I think I was 12 going on 13. Um, obviously a teenager, Mm -hmm. (laughs) not not as much fun. I think to be moving to a place that's so different from where you've come from. Uh, I don't know. I think it was really, really good. And then there were also memories that I have. I mean, like in high school, for example, I was the only brown person in my high school for like the first year or so until another brown person came <laughs> um you know and there in the in the primary school there was obviously my brother and then there was one other person and there was a teacher and that was it so coming from Zimbabwe which 
there's people of all different colors and races and everything there. Um, and then coming to a place where, I mean, I joke with people that I didn't realize I was brown until I got to Australia, but it's true because you, I didn't recognize color in that way. Like obviously I knew it was brown, (laughs) but you don't recognize color in that way until it's like, you know, you're so different from everyone else. Right. Right. I'm guessing it was a hard sort of hard transition in that sense, just getting to understand these differences probably does a bit of psychological adjustment that you have to make. Yeah, I think so. But I also think, you know, we had a really good friends, you know, parents were very supportive of us just going out and doing new things and, you know, meeting new people. So I think the transition, I mean, in particular for my brother was really easy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He is hundred percent Australian right now. He has a very thick Australian accent. Um, so yeah, I think moving at that age, it could have been very difficult, but, um, yeah, we had a lot of family support. Wow. That's so you, you've had such diverse background in terms of living in Africa then moving to Australia and then you moved to Singapore Mm. eight years ago. Yeah. Um, and what drove you to moved to Singapore? What was that transition like? And what brought you out here? So at the time I was in a job that, I mean, I felt it was stagnant. Uh, I joke that I was having my quarter life crisis at the time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I was like not enjoying work. I just, you know, wasn't feeling very motivated at all. I had also um, just left a job which was not great in terms of mental health. I ended up having a big breakdown um, and needed some time to recover. So I think after that, I was like ready for whatever is next and, you know, kind of feeling a bit impatient for whatever was coming next. And a friend of mine who is Singaporean, um, he was having his farewell barbecue. He was coming, he was leaving to come back to Singapore and he was like, you know what, you should totally come. You'll love Singapore. And that just kind of spurred me to be like, oh my God, never considered it Singapore. Let me start reaching out to people. Um, what is it like to live there? I mean, I'd only been in Singapore for like a day stopover before that. And I got in contact with a friend who said, the best way to uh, find a job here is to physically be here. Uh, UN Women has internships. Why don't you apply for an internship and then use the time during your internship to network and, you know, see what it's like here. I have always wanted to work for the UN. That's been my, I mean, I chose my degree because I wanted to work for the UN. That's how much. What what was your degree in? (laughs) I did um, political science. Mm. And then I also did business management as well. So I had um, two degrees. And the business management was just to like hedge my bets, you know. (laughs) If it doesn't, if my diplomacy career doesn't work out, at least I've got business. So yeah, I ended up applying for the internship and I got it and it was a three month internship. And I remember uh, when they were offering me the role, they were like, you know, um, typically the internships are for new grads who don't have any work experience at all. I mean, you've already had a few years of work experience, so we just want to be clear and set the expectation that you're not going to get a job with us. And I was like, no, it's fine. Oh, my God, I've always wanted to work for the UN, even if it's, like, literally an unpaid internship. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, uh, This is, like, a dream come true. And so, yeah, that's initially how I came out to Singapore. Um, A month into my internship, my manager resigned 
and I applied for her job and three months has turned into what two years at UN Women and what eight years in Singapore wow so that worked out pretty well which you know this is I find this pretty amazing that some people would probably would have said no if I'm not going to get a job at the UN after these three months of unpaid internship then no Mm -hmm. I don't want this exactly some people say well this is an entry yeah. to something that I want and I don't know what's going to happen afterwards. But mm-hmm. And generally the people who take that risk, it seems like things kind of work out for them. Mm. Um, and and uh, so that's that's pretty amazing. And so yeah. when you first moved here, did you like it? Did mm. you think the weather is different? And yeah. how did you find that adjustment? When I first moved here, and I think this is a good thing, I thought I only had three months here, right? Because I was mm-hmm. like, I'm on a, I'm on the clock. Um, and worst case scenario, the internship does not get extended. Nothing happens at the end of this three months. I need to go back home. So I was like, I'm going to make the most of these three mm-hmm. months. Um, I literally saw everything, did as much as possible during that period of time. Um, I remember uh, when I was coming over, a group of friends are like, party hard type friends Mm -hmm. um so obviously got straight into the nightlife in singapore which is amazing (laughs) it is or was amazing pre-covid exactly um and i'm naturally a night owl as well so i love being out at night um and then when did you start to do accelerating asia which is what Mm. you're doing now and um would love to sort of learn more about what that is and what you're currently doing Yeah, so Accelerating Asia started 2018, so it's almost three years for us. The reason that we started it was, so my co-founder Craig and I used to work for another accelerator. It was a corporate-backed accelerator, and that's how we met. Um, That program ended up being shut down, and we had a lot of people in the ecosystem reach out to us and say, you can't let this thing die. You know, it's an important part of the ecosystem, And so I think it was literally like the 30th of June, we were, you know, the corporate program. First of July, we were accelerating Asia, the two of us. (laughs) Um, And we were trying to figure out, you know, how do we make an accelerator program independent? Uh, There have been other independent programs that have come before us. JFDI is a really notable one Mm. in Singapore. And I think they served a really important part of the ecosystem because they kind of paved the way for those kind of programs here. And we definitely consulted with the team when we were setting up Accelerating Asia, you know, tell us the ugly things, what what didn't work for you guys, um, what would you do differently And I think the fundamental problem for accelerator programs is revenue. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, You can't charge the startups, really, cash. And you can't rely on exits from the fund or, you know, if you take equity from those program fees in order to drive your revenue for the long term. So you need to have other sources of revenue in order to maintain your independence. And then being able to balance that while running a fund, while running the accelerator program um, and not being purely corporate backed or purely government backed and maintaining your independence is part of the challenge as well. So yeah, that's essentially what we were trying to create is an independent (laughs) program. Mm -hmm. So currently what we have now is three parts to what we do. We have the accelerator program, which works with pre-Series A companies from around the region, primarily Southeast Asia um, and South Asia focused. 
we have a three month program that we take them through and we run this twice a year. Um, separate to that, we have a fund. So the fund invests in all the companies that we take through the accelerator program and then can double down on some of the top performers. Uh, and then finally, the third part of what we do, which kind of solves that revenue issue that I was talking about is we have a consulting arm. So it works with multinationals, governments, development organizations, um, pretty much any organization that wants to engage with the startup ecosystem in some way. And we run programs for them. So it could be accelerator programs. It could be um, helping them with deal flow or engaging them in some of the existing work that we're doing. Yeah. So those are the three parts of what we're currently doing. Yeah. So you must be very busy doing a lot of different things. Maybe we can talk about your experience in raising a fund, the good, bad and ugly uh, of doing that in Singapore. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> that's a lot of ugly. <laughs> um, okay, so full disclaimer first is this is the first fund that I've set up. And obviously, I don't have any comparison with other markets. Um, so I can definitely give my experience about Singapore. Um, good, bad and ugly. I think the good is that, you know, the regulatory frameworks here are super streamlined. The government is really supportive of new businesses, new funds and things like that. Um, in fact, when we were first setting up our fund, we got um, a license, which is called the VCFM license, Venture Capital Fund Manager license. And it was a second edition of what the license used to look like. So we, we got through in the second edition. The first edition was quite hard to qualify and they got a lot of feedback from different organizations and then they changed the process. And so that's what we ended up getting. The idea behind the license that we have is that it's a lot more streamlined. It is tailored for people who are first-time fund managers, <laughs> for people who are setting up small funds as well. Ours is a relatively small fund. And then, you know, as you scale your fund, so if your fund does become bigger or it does become, you know, things do become a little more complex, you can go back and apply for more permissions or just update them on things that you're doing. So I think... It has been a really streamlined process. I think it took like literally a couple of months for us to get approved for that license. Once you have that license, you can just go out and start. Mm. Yeah. That sounds relatively easy in that mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. I guess the challenge with raising a fund comes from probably what you would see in any other market and that's the fund managers like you yourself right mm -hmm. do you have the networks in order to fundraise do you have a um you know a solid investment thesis as well um are you credible do you have a track record um basically are you able to attract capital to what you're doing how many venture capital funds do you think there are in singapore Oh my God, I think there are so many. Like hundreds, thousands? <laughs> uh, I'd say hundreds. And I, there are more. Uh, like, literally every day I speak to people who are talking about, I'm going to set up a fund. I'm like, why? It's so hard. <laughs> if I knew how hard it was, I don't know if I would have set up a fund. <laughs> yeah. Because right. I always wonder, you know, everyone has a fund in Singapore. And I just I always wonder where the capital allocation is going to because you don't really see that many investments really, really happening. Or, or, mm -hmm. or do you think they're happening, we just don't know about them? 
Mm. I mean, maybe because I'm in the space, but I see a lot of investments happening. Um, I think there was certainly a slowdown with COVID. Mm -hmm. A lot of funds were kind of wait and see, um, you know, see how the portfolio companies are performing as well or allocating a large amount of capital to existing portfolio companies rather than deploying out to new companies. Um, so COVID definitely impacted that. And I think there was also now much more emphasis on profitability, you know, mm -hmm. how quickly a company is going to get to that compared to pre-COVID days where, you know, I think it was a little bit of out of control and we've seen, <laughs> seen examples of that. Um, you know, globally. So, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question. <laughs> yeah, no, it does. And, and um, like, how did you go about fundraising? Who did you approach? Mm -hmm. uh, who are your LPs? Yeah. Uh, so our fund, again, I mentioned is quite small, um, which means that primarily our investors or LPs are um, angel investors, high net worth individuals, some family offices and institutions as well. Um, but primarily individuals. Reason for that is, okay, so if, when we first designed the fund, uh, we wanted to give access to people who are in our network. Um, you know, they came from our old um, accelerator days. We wanted to involve them in what we were doing now, um, get those mentors on board. And those, um, I guess, if you're talking startup lingo, would be the friends, family, and fools. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but... I have to say they were our biggest champions. You know, these are people in the startup ecosystem already who literally put their money where their mouth is <laughs> right. and, and backed us from the start. And, you know, they're still really involved in everything that we're doing now. The I guess the second edition of, you know, investors that came in were probably from a wider network. Um, the challenge with setting up a fund is that you need to show a track record. And so even though, you know, I've managed programs before, Craig and I have managed investments before, we have technically track record, it's not our fund, we weren't managing our fund and so we needed to show that we had a track record with managing our own fund and when we were first starting out we were like oh you know we'll raise, you, typically at that time they were like 10, 25 million dollar funds as first funds. Um, I was like, that's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but second, we got a lot of feedback from, you know, very experienced VCs in the ecosystem saying, raise a small fund first, do it quickly, show you have a track record, and then go out and do the bigger fund. You know, you're going to attract a lot more capital that way. And you're going to show that, you know, you've got existing investments and that they're all doing really well. So that was our strategy. And that's kind of why we have the fund that we have now. So it's a $5 million fund. And I guess the allocation um, or the investors that are coming on board are coming on board because, well, it's tough to be an angel investor, <laughs> right? Mm. It's really hard to do it by yourself. You need to ensure that you're getting in front of enough deals in order to you know, choose the right companies. Then you've got to manage the portfolio yourself, do all of the paperwork and everything. Whereas with us, they probably invest the same amount that they would invest in one startup in our fund. And then they get access to about 50 startups across the portfolio. They can be as hands-on as they like, you know, through the accelerator program, or they could be like, you know what, just give me my quarterly reports um, and tell me who are the three companies that you think I, I <laughs> should double down on. Mm. Yeah. 
And and is your fund tied to the the programming, the the accelerator program that you have, and do you only invest in those? How how is that set up? Mm, yeah, so it's very tied together, and that's actually how we save a lot of costs on the fund side. So the fund really leverages the accelerator program. So the fund makes an investment into each of the companies coming into the program. Right. So that that's probably it's usually the chicken or egg situation, right? Where you, you want the deal flow uh, in order to raise a fund, but you kind of need the fund to get deal flow. So I guess with you, you sort of started with the programming, with the accelerator program because of your previous background. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that sort of led to then saying, okay, we have enough credibility now and enough deal flow to go out to angel investors to say, put in a $50,000 check, $100,000 check, uh, because we'll do the whole work for you. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And what's the um, the commercials of the fund? Is it like what's the, shell, uh, the, the life uh, of the fund mm-hmm. and the carry? Um, yep. etc. So it's a 10-year fund, um, which is funny because we always get people who are like, oh my gosh, 10 years is so long. Mm-hmm. Like, well, we're making really early stage investments. Mm-hmm. So hopefully, I mean, obviously we really hope that there'll be exits long before um, 10 years. But um, what it ultimately means is that 10 years is um, when the fund winds down. Mm. But if we get exits before that, we can pass them on to our LPs. So it's not that your money is held up for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Though, disclaimer, you should assume that it is. Right, right. <laughs> so that, that's the life of the fund. Um, the carry, so it's a typical um, 20% carry. And everything else is pretty standard. Like, so management fees as well. Ours is below um, average. We say 1.8% across um, the life of the fund. Um, but in actual fact, it's probably going to be less than that hmm. because... It leverages the accelerator program. Right. And since you had never done fundraising before, what was your first mm. fundraising experience? Like, were you just going to people saying, hey, um, we have this, Yeah. we want to <laughs> raise a fund, give us a check? You know, it's funny. Um, I actually have a background in sales and in beauty <laughs> and cosmetics. Um, and I think I learned a lot, like basically everything that I was doing, you know, selling Chanel to people is exactly the same as selling a fund. <laughs> it's the same principle, right? You just yeah. need to make people feel comfortable with the idea. Um, and I also think about, I hate being sold. Um, I hate like sleaziness of mm-hmm. salespeople and I never want anyone to feel that way with us. Um, and I'm also brutally honest with it. I'm like, you know, as a 10 year, you know, fund, you may not get any of your money back. Mm-hmm. Like we may not get any of our money back. So I want people to be really educated when they come into the whole process, because at the end of the day, it's a really high risk investment. Mm-hmm. So Hopefully, I guess my style is like to be really upfront and honest because at the end of the day, they're also investing in you as a fund manager. Mm -hmm. They want to know that you are considering, you know, their scenarios as well. Mm -hmm. But yeah, fundraising for a fund was really hard for me at first because I used to get really nervous about talking to people who have money. You know, like Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's a power dynamic there. (laughs) Um But I think over the past year or so, I've shifted my perspective because it's not like I'm going out. It's not like, you know, when I used to work for UN Women, you know, we did fundraising as well, but it's 
donations. So you're always mm-hmm. going out with your hands out asking for money. Um, you're not necessarily providing much in return. It's not an equal um, partnership. Mm-hmm. Whereas this, I had to shift my perspective. I'm like, no, we're investing their money for them. They're going to get something in return. Hopefully we all get something in return. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it was more of a, a mind shift. So your, your, your comfort level of fundraising for the fund has, I'm guessing, over the last couple of years improved, mm-hmm. more comfort level, more confidence. What was your first sales pitch? Well, you know, it's funny. My first one, I think, was um, I didn't even know I was doing it actually, because it was someone who was, you know, involved with our program before. Um, and it was literally just a catch up and she was asking us, you know, what are you guys up to? And I was just like, you know, telling her the story of what we're doing and the fund and everything. She's like, Oh, you know, I'm going to bring my husband next. Cause we, you know, are you still raising for your fund? Yes. Oh, you know, like, well, so I didn't even realize I was doing it at the time. And I think Mm -hmm. that was actually good because it was a good confidence boost that I can bring someone into the fund Mm -hmm. (laughs) without feeling like I'm actually pushing them to come in. Right. So clearly they saw the value in what you were creating from the programs. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can shift gears to the program. Uh, You have, I think you were mentioning you have 40 companies Mm. in your portfolio now over the last three years. Yeah. And that's quite, I mean, that's a lot that you're doing what, 13, 14 companies a year, uh, which is pretty high volume. And um, the thing I noticed was a lot of these startups that are in your portfolio are from all over the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'd love to find out about where they're from and and sort of like what attracts them to come to a program in Singapore. Yeah. Oh my goodness. 40 companies. <laughs> it's a be, lot. Yeah, it's a lot. So we take in about um, 10 companies every batch, like every cohort, and we run it twice a year. Um, but we're actually looking at expanding that. So this, this coming incoming batch will be the most amount of startups we've taken through. So there'll be about 13. Um which is really exciting because it means that we've also grown as a team to be able to support that many companies coming in. So about 60% of the companies come from Southeast Asia. The rest come from South Asia and other. And by other, I Mm. would specifically say typically there are Australian companies that, you know, want to come up to this region to expand or maybe the company is a Delaware C Corp, for example, um, and they've got existing operations in there, uh, you know, around the region. The idea is that the companies don't necessarily need to be headquartered here, but we're looking for, you know, why? Why this region? Mm-hmm. There are plenty of other accelerator programs in your home region. Like, why, why are you coming to this particular one? So that's kind of the first question if they're not based here. In terms of the startups themselves, they are all industries, um, technology companies, but all industries. Um, we've got literally everything. I'm starting. I'm thinking of something that we don't have. Beauty? No, we've got beauty, um, marketing, HR, med tech, health tech, like logistics, manufacturing, um, everything. Uh, why do they come to Singapore? So I think that's a really good question. Singapore is the hub of the region, Mm -hmm. governance structures, funding, networks, headquarters of all these big regional companies, even global companies, 
are here or in Singapore. So I think when a company or a startup gets to a certain stage and they're looking for that next level of funding or access, they have to come to Singapore. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of the things I noticed about your portfolio is it's, it's very diverse mm. in terms of male versus female. It's also diverse in terms of uh, industry. But also, I think I saw something on your website or not where it, it hits a lot of the UN sustainability mm. goals. Mm -hmm. Was that by design or that sort of just happened on its own? Uh, a little bit of both. <laughs> um, the intention was there from the start that we wanted to create something that was giving back in some way. And I mean, it's it's in our, our guiding statement. So we believe that entrepreneurs are one of humanity's greatest catalysts for positive change. And so we really believe that. And so it, it naturally ties into the UN Sustainable Development Goals. I think also by nature of where we're operating in the world, there are so many big problems to be solved here. And entrepreneurs are often at the forefront of that. However, we don't actually lead with, you know, the SDGs or impact as something that is our primary focus. And the reason that we don't do that is because there's still preconceived ideas about what impact means. People often think, you know, when you're investing in something with social impact, you're compromising your financial returns. Um, and that's not the case, mm -hmm. but it's a, it's a barrier, right, that we need to overcome. So that's part of the reason why we don't lead with impact. Um, the second reason is when we're working with entrepreneurs around the world, a lot of them don't know about the UN SDGs or impact investing or like, you know, all of these global standards about how they should be measuring their impact. Um, they're just out there building a business and solving a problem. And so we don't want it to be kind of exclusive. We want to, you know, bring everyone in. It's more of an idea of we want to invest in fundamentally good businesses and good ethical founders And it doesn't matter if you don't know about the SDGs mm -hmm. or you don't do that. We can, you know, help you if you wanted to pursue that pathway. Right. So it sounds like it's it, it's more of a natural thing, occurrence that happens because of your core values and mm -hmm. because of sort of your, you know, uh, I, I guess, mission uh, mm -hmm. of, the, of the fund. Now, that's great. And then I also noticed we have a common friend, uh, Chia. Mm -hmm. who is part of the sh Shaper... Yeah, Shaper Impact Capital. Yeah, what's, what's, can you tell us about that? I, I was yeah. wondering, what is this Shaper Impact Capital? Yeah, so he's going to love this. Shout out to Chia. is um, one of the founders of Shaper Impact Capital, which is essentially a network of impact investors uh, working to connect uh, impact investment capital to impact startups. Um, and that's part of the challenge where, you know, there are a lot of impact startups out there. There are a lot of impact investors. They don't often <laughs> find each other. Um, and so that's kind of what that's for. I think the network is about, oh, it's definitely over 100 um, investors that are now involved, literally in coordinating this entire thing. So mm -hmm. scouting for startups, working with impact investors, working with mentors as well um, globally. Um, and then we've got, you know, a huge database of impact investors that we connect these startups to. And is this part of the World Economic Forum? Hmm. Can you tell us about the relationship there? Yeah. So um, Shaper Impact Capital is uh, an initiative run by Global Shapers. Um, and Global Shapers are kind of the youth community of um, the World Economic Forum. 
And I hear the World Economic Forum is coming to Singapore yeah, this year. Very exciting, isn't it? What's, what's, uh, what's going on over there? <laughs> well, I don't know. It's all top secret. <laughs> Are you involved in any of that? Um, hope to be. I mean, I'm still, um, I'm a global shaper for the Singapore hub. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, there are global shaper hubs all around the world, and they're all driving um, impact and running local projects in their communities. The Singapore Global Shapers Hub is obviously hoping to be involved in the forum in some way, and I think there are a lot of opportunities too. And it would be really great that more people understand about what this event could potentially mean for this region, because. I think it's one of the first times that such a big event is coming to mm-hmm. this part of the world, in particular to Singapore. Mm-hmm. Like it's a real opportunity to showcase all the incredible things going on here. I mean, just purely alone logistically, if we look at how many people coming from overseas, world leaders, um, politicians, you know, heads of states and things like that, coming to tiny little Singapore. And the coordination involved with that, especially during, you know, a pandemic, um, yeah, has a huge opportunity for the region. Yeah, I think that's such a huge development because when I think of World Economic Forum, in my head, I picture Davos. Mm -hmm. In the winter, snow, ice, people wearing warm clothes and and very sort of bougie kind of an event. And then think of Singapore, everybody with their slippers, shorts. Yeah. (laughs) Hot, it's hot, it's shorts and flip-flops, yeah. at least that's what I wear. Exactly. And and so that's a pretty big dramatic change. Why do you think um, they chose to move to Singapore? Yeah, I mean, I look at how Singapore has managed the pandemic. Mm. It's amazing. And I, I know so many people, and myself included, where we look around the world and we're like, oh my goodness, I'm so glad I'm in Singapore. <laughs> right. Right, and it's it's the same reason, like you're looking for a country that is stable, has managed things really well, in particular, you know, with health-wise. And Singapore's great at events. I mean, look at the F1, how that's managed Mm -hmm. here. I remember uh, when I first went to the Formula One, I don't know if you've seen this, but there's a part where you go underground and then they've literally created a human roundabout Mm -hmm. with, like, exit signs, Mm -hmm. people like the police directing people, you can only go one way. So if you miss your exit, you need to go the whole way around Mm -hmm. because they're, yeah, it's incredible. And it's just that kind of, that mindset, the logistics and making things happen in Singapore. Yeah. Puts it world-class. So I I think clearly there is the, you know, the logistics part of it, uh, which, and and the the pandemic and the management of that. Mm. But it sounds like to me, it's also a bit of, um, a uh, sign of sort of the center of gravity is slowly shifting towards, it has been shifting towards yeah. Asia, but maybe this is, you know, sort of a part of that, like, Hey, this region of the world is growing and, and we need to be part of like the future as opposed to being mm-hmm. uh, in, in a place where it sort of represents the past. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, they call Singapore is the Switzerland of Asia, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, okay, and then mm. since since you're heavily involved in the startup ecosystem here in Singapore and in the region, what do you feel is lacking or missing or um, things that can be improved to create more companies? I think there are a lot of initiatives going on right now with the government, um, in particular to create new companies. 
because of the pandemic and like really spurred on by that, you know, obviously people losing their jobs and they want to create a culture which is entrepreneurial and, you know, maybe not necessarily leaving their jobs to create new businesses, but have an entrepreneurial way of thinking. So I think there's a lot of new things starting from there. Um, I think one thing that we see as a difference between Singapore and some other, in particular, emerging markets um, around the region is that obviously Singapore has a lot of um, government backing. Um, there's a lot of ways for local startups to access funding or, you know, access programs and things to help them. We don't see that in many emerging markets. But what we do see in emerging markets is a level of grit. Mm. Um and I don't think you can replicate that without taking away all the resources, you know. So it's kind of, it's a balance where there is that kind of level of grit or um, I don't like using the word hustle because I feel like it's so overused. But they're always, you know, they're adaptable, you know, more likely to think of, okay, plan A didn't work out. There's plan B, there's C, D, E, mm-hmm. F, you know, like they're always going to try and find a way. So I think it's more of a, a culture and I think that, yeah, that's kind of maybe what's different. I don't think it's a good or a bad thing because ultimately in some of these markets, there is no support. Mm-hmm. So you could have a great founder who's hustled their way, you know, and created a great business and they may never get access to funding mm-hmm. um, because they just can't, you know, they don't have the networks, they don't have the resources, they can't get it out. So yeah, I think there are pros and cons with that. Mm. So you've worked with a lot of startups in the region. Any horror stories uh, or, um, you know, juicy stories about things that have gone wrong? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Short answer, yes. (laughs) I think when you're working across so many different markets, so many different industries, so many different age groups as well. Like, you know, we've got really young founders. We've got like all, like all the spectrum and then cultures as well. Oh my goodness. There's bound to be a lot of interesting stories. (laughs) I I find though that I don't get as stressed as I used to about them. And, you know, maybe this is something, so I have a coach as well. I'm an executive coach and he's like, um, trust in your ability to just be able to solve the problem you know something bad's going to happen, don't need to worry about what it is, but when it comes up, you'll be able to solve it. I think the most common ones have to do with like predatory angel investors um, who, you know, invest a relatively small amount on the cap table and take a relatively large amount um, of equity in those businesses. Um, And, you know, seeing as we're often the first institutional investor to come in, we have a lot of work to do in terms of, well, tidying up their cap table, tidying up their governance structures and everything that's going on in order to make them um, interesting for the institutional investors that are coming through. Um, So we often have to have, and, you know, thankfully um, right now it's mainly Craig, my co-founder, and Nesh, our entrepreneur in residence, who's front-facing all of these conversations. Um, but we often have to have hard conversations with some of these angel investors to ultimately negotiate them down and say, you know, you could have 40% of a business that's worth absolutely nothing because it can never raise any more money after this, or you could have 10% of something big. Um, so <laughs> these are some of the conversations that we have. Thankfully, most of them are not not intentionally predatory. 
Um, some are. Most of them, it's just, you know, they don't know, the founder doesn't know. It's like, oh, yeah, 40, 40% sounds right, and mm-hmm. that's how they go about it. Um, and so it's an education on both sides. Um, but where it is a situation where an investor just doesn't want to budge, unfortunately, it means that we can't invest in those companies and we can't take them through our program because we know that they're not going to go anywhere after that. So those, I think, are probably the most difficult conversations because it's not necessarily the founder, right? They have been doing really well. It's someone else who you've brought into your business as an investor that um, just won't budge. When I look at what you're doing and look at you, uh, I always ask myself, is this something you always wanted to do when Mm. you were... I don't know, in university, you wanted to work for the UN. That seemed like that was sort of like mm-hmm. the, the dream. And um, now that you're doing this, which I think is highly impactful, right? Mm-hmm. You're building businesses, you're empowering people, you're empowering them to build more businesses. So this could be the ultimate sort of impact mm-hmm. that you can create in the world. Sometimes do you sort of look at what you're doing and go, wow, like, how did I end up here? Oh, yeah, all the time. I think in particular, I notice it when I'm doing school talks or, um, yeah, you know, university talks and things like that. And um, I always get the question about, oh, you know, I'm studying this at this, you know, um, I'm studying accounting right now, whatever it is. It's like they feel like it's so binary and that's Mm -hmm. the only um, thing that they'll ever be able to do. And I remember that because when I was choosing my degree, I was like, oh, you know, this is going to change my life. Mm -hmm. Like whatever I study right now is going to be the pathway that I end up for the rest of my life um, without realizing that, no, it's not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's, you know, you can change, you can adapt as long as you're willing to learn. Um, And I always joke with people that, you know, I mean, especially when you look into in the VC space, right, it's predominantly male. I often go into the room and I'm the only female in there. Not only am I the only female, but I mean, right now I'm wearing a lipstick t-shirt. I've got bright red lipstick on, like a flowy leopard print skirt. Um, I'm in your face, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like it's pretty obvious that I'm not like everyone else in that room. And I used to feel really, um, I guess not like embarrassed about it, but like trying to fit in, you know, kind of like dulling myself down to like, or trying to portray myself in a certain way so that I fit a certain, like the same background that everyone else has. But the reality is I do not have a finance background. Actually, I pretty much almost failed accounting the first time I did, like when I did it in university. And here I am like, (laughs) uh, like what, um, a couple years later, not a couple years later, I'm older than that. But, um, you know, managing a fund. So I think you can always learn what you need to learn Mm -hmm. as long as you're adaptable and, you know, wanting to be there. So I totally agree. (laughs) I would have never seen myself in this position. (laughs) No, that's great. And you're really young. I mean, you are in terms of like where the, like generally when you, you're right, like when you go into this industry, Mm -hmm. it's, predominantly male and Mm -hmm. it's predominantly not very young people Mm -hmm. and so you you sort of like hit all the um, you're very young you're Mm -hmm. a female that is not your status quo uh with the the, the status quo background so i i think you have 
like an amazing personality and I think you're going to do amazing things. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Um, I think I just hope that there are other people who listen to this um, and they're like, you know what, I don't fit the mold of whatever it is that they were looking at right now and they feel like they can just go and try, you know, worst case, it doesn't work out, but mm -hmm. at least you tried. Great advice. Okay, thank you. We hope you have gathered some insights today and are more inspired to pursue that dream of yours. Join our community of 1 million entrepreneurs-to-be by joining our Draper Entrepreneur Network Slack channel to connect, ideate, and create a wave of exciting new ventures together. We have a whole ecosystem to empower you from venture funds, education programs, business services, physical locations, and most importantly, a great bunch of amazing people wanting you to succeed. Link is in the description below. This podcast is jointly produced by Draper Startup House and the team at The Financial Coconut. Follow us on our socials and visit one of our physical locations wherever you are today.